Well, Happy New Year, Grace Bible Fellowship. It's kind of that time of year where we think about the new year and what's going to come and what's going to be this next year, maybe set some goals or things like that. And I've been thinking about the new year and what this year might bring. You know, we never know what, what could happen in our life. We never know the future. And I feel more and more like totalitarian government is in our future, or at least resisting totalitarian government in the next little while. It seems that the governments of the world want to lock us down, restrict our movement, uh, spread, limit the spread of information, destroy our prosperity, and they want, they'll use any means to accomplish these purposes. It seems like the media and technology companies, the government, world health organizations, have all seemingly joined forces to do, you know, what exactly, I don't know. I I don't know what the agenda is, but at least to me it seems increasingly like there is an agenda. And from a human perspective, that agenda looks dark. Seeds of division have been sown in our society. The current situation or the, the coming situation, at least as I anticipate it, reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 21, where he says, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. Or again in Matthew 24 and verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Or as it says in John chapter 16, and actually I want you to just turn and and see this with your own eyes. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 16. Beginning Beginning at verse 1, Jesus says, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now, our society is not going to do what they do to offer service to God, but I think the result very much could be the same, separation and persecution. Jesus told his disciples these things to prepare them for these things, to keep them, he says, to keep them from falling away. And that's what I really want to do as well. I I feel a responsibility to to prepare you for what could happen, what what might happen. Again, I don't know what is going to happen, and Lord willing, it won't be what I think it what, what it could be. But what I want to do is, if I can, is I want to equip you for persecution should it come. I want to equip you for the loss of freedom, for the loss of the things of the world, and even the loss of all things, as Paul put it in Philippians 3.8. What I want to teach then is, as we kind of do the next two sermons in this new year, is I, I want to teach how to find joy in the Lord regardless of your circumstances. How to find joy in the Lord regardless of your circumstances. Paul said in Philippians 4.4, 4, 
rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. And remember, he said that from the prison in persecution under the Roman government. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. But the question comes then, how do we do that? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? How do we find joy in the Lord? You know, it's, it's one of those things that's easy to say, and we can kind of lightly say that. We can just say, oh yeah, we'll just rejoice in the Lord. But we can, we can say it, and, and often though, we, if we really think about it, we don't know what it means, or we, or we don't really know how to do it. We know that it's a thing, but we don't actually know how to do it. Do you know how to rejoice in the Lord? This is a question for you. Do you know how to rejoice in the Lord even when things aren't going the way that you prefer? And the best way that I know, at least for my own life and what's helped me, the best way that I know to, to teach this is to look at it from both sides. Did you know there's two sides to rejoicing in the Lord? There's the, the positive side, the positive rejoicing in the Lord, which consists of knowing Him, delighting in Him, doing what you do for His glory and honor. On the positive side, we respond to all of life as, as one who sees God's hand in everything. And we come to know Him increasingly through life, and knowing Him, we respond to Him in ways that He teaches us in His Word. In other words, the, the positive side consists of fellowship with God. We know Him and we respond to Him. We glorify Him. And that, that response and that fellowship delights our souls. That's the positive side. And the negative side is the opposite of this. The negative side involves finding our delight in our circumstances. Or finding our delight in our possessions. Or in anything other than God. The negative side doesn't recognize God through life and ignores Him or fails to see what He's doing in the circumstances of life. And if the positive side is fellowship with God and the worship of God, then the negative side is fellowship with the world and the worship of self. Another way to frame that that then is to call it idolatry, which is what Scripture calls it, idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of someone or something other than God. And again, to me, when we, when we look at both sides of this, I, I find it super helpful. And that's what we're going to do over the next two Sundays. I called this series the Vanity and Glory. Today, we're going to look at the negative side. We're going to explore vanity. We're going to look at what that is. And then next week, we're going to talk about what it means to glorify God. And whether we face hardship or not this year, whatever happens this year, I think these two messages will help us because we were created to glorify God. And we glorify God by delighting in Him and fellowshipping with Him. And the things that, that keeps us from enjoying fellowship with God through Jesus Christ is idolatry. When we set our heart and our affections on something other than God. When I delight in anything other than God, that robs me of my highest good and it robs God of His glory. Whenever we look to something other than God to satisfy us or protect us, whenever we put our trust in something other than God, whatever that thing is, that's an idol and it's vanity. In light of eternity, 
And the coming day of judgment, where worshiping or loving anything other than God is a total waste. It's a total waste. And in Hebrew, the word to describe that waste is chabel. Chabel or chabel. Vanity, fleeting, futility, that's that word, chabel. And I, I want to teach you that word from the book of Ecclesiastes. And so you could kind of begin to try to find your way to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. God created us to enjoy this world, but not apart from Him, not separate from Him. If we live for this world and we try to to leave God and eternity out of the picture, we will find that our pursuits are empty. And so again, I want you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tried to live a life apart from God. He pursued satisfaction in the world, and he found that it was chavel, that it was empty, that it was meaningless, that it was futile, that it was like striving after wind, that it was like trying to grab smoke, but you could never take a hold of it because it it disappeared. It, it kind of faded away. It was evanescent is a word that kind of describes that, that smokiness that, that kind of just disappears. Solomon came to see that his pursuits in life were vain, and the joy he got out of those things was fleeting and temporary. And so we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 1 to 11, where Solomon, uh, who calls himself Kohelet, he calls himself the preacher, he tells us about his attempt to find fulfillment in idolatry. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, this is kind of the the clearest part of this book where he tells us about his life um, in this pursuit. But before we begin, look at chapter 1 and verse 12. Chapter 1 and verse 12. The I, the preacher, or I, Kohelet, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So Kohelet, the preacher, he set his heart to searching and examining kind of everything that's done under heaven, heaven, everything that's done in this world. And this is a, a thorough scientific evaluation. He's, he's going to kind of search out everything and, and, and try to figure out life under the sun. He used his, remember God had given Solomon great wisdom and he used this wisdom to search out the ultimate meaning or purpose in the world. And he asked this question then, he asked, where can I find lasting satisfaction? Where can I find joy? Look at chapter 2 and verse 25. It says there, for apart from him, and him there is God, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Without God, Solomon says, there is no enjoyment. And that's what I want to convince you of today. Outside of God, everything is vanity. Everything is smoke. Everything is striving after the wind. Everything is a waste. And I'm praying that our time together will show you the absolute emptiness of trying to find enjoyment in this world apart from God. And then next time we'll, we'll do the opposite and we'll say, how do we find enjoyment in God? And so we're going we're gonna to hopefully kind of push us off of the world. And then next week we're going to see what does it look like to, to find that in God. Solomon says that, 
that contentment and joy can only be found in an eternal perspective that finds joy in God regardless of our circumstances. And so let's look at our text today. Let's read it. This is this is Solomon's experiment. This is where he, where he tells us his experiment. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which uh, to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man." Then he says in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is Kohelet's testimony about six empty pursuits that cannot bring lasting satisfaction. And we're going to look at this text under two headings. We're going to look first and we're going to see Kohelet's examination. And that's the, the six empty pursuits that he, that he tried. And then second, we're going to see Pro, Pro, uh, Kohelet's proclamation in verse 11. And so first of all, Kohelet's examination. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time here. Kohelet presents us again with six empty pursuits, six avenues that he pursued in his attempt to find meaningful enjoyment under the sun. And what these are then for us is six diversions from true joy in the Lord. And these are things that we are tempted to look to as well. These are things the world presents to us as alternatives to the joy that should be found in God. Just like the devil tempted Eve to think that God was withholding something good from her, so he tempts us to think that there's some enjoyment that God is keeping from us. And Kohelet's warning to us today is, don't pursue what cannot satisfy We are all tempted to replace God's joy with these vanities. And so this is going to serve as a reminder for us and hopefully drive us away from from finding joy in these things. And the first empty pursuit then that Kohelet examines is, we're going to call it play in verses 1 to 3. 
So number one, in, or, or sub-point number one, is play in verses one to three. This is what the world thinks of as the good life. Keep things shallow. Don't think too deeply. Play, laugh, have a good time. This is the, the kind of the party life. Let's see if we can find joy in the party life. And Kohelet says, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? In 117, we see just before this that, um, that Kohelet had pursued wisdom and it didn't do it for him. He, he, he had, the, the more wisdom he got, the more suffering he saw in the world and it, it bothered him. And so now he goes and he's going to turn to folly. He's going to turn to foolishness. And he thinks maybe the answer to life is, is just to have a good time. Maybe the answer is just to have fun. And so he thinks, let's, let's try this. Can, can lighthearted fun deliver us from vanity in the world? And so he gave it a try and he, he speaks to himself. He, he says in his heart, he has a, a heart to heart conversation with himself and he says to himself, come, I will test you with pleasure. I will test you with pleasure. Pleasure normally translated joy. And it could be that he has in, in mind a hedonistic pleasure, but the idea here is more likely just this, this idea of good times. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have good times. I'm going to enjoy myself. Enjoy yourself. The idea is there is see good. In verse 2, laughter and pleasure are together. And the sense of all of this is good times, funny jokes, light, light-hearted laughter and joy. This is test number one. And in verse 3, he adds some fine wine to the mix. Nothing lightens the spirits like a bit of wine. And so Gohelet is, is careful to tell us there that he didn't just give himself over to drunkenness. He's not pursuing the pleasure of a drunken fool in the gutter. He's, he's too wise for that. Remember, he's the wisest man who ever lived. And so he says in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. But then he adds, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And so he's drinking a little bit of wine to promote and maximize his pleasure and joy. He's drinking a glass or two of wine while the, the greatest entertainers in the ancient world perform for him and his court. And he's using his God-given intellect then to maximize his joy in the world. Now don't get this totally wrong. He's, he's still taking hold of folly here. Laughter and, and gaiety and pleasure seeking is folly. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 4 from the New American Standard Bible says, the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. And verse 6 talks about there the laughter of the fool. But so merriment and, and hilarity that Kohelet's talking about in chapter 2 and chapter 7 is one that attempts to escape the realities of life. Let's just ignore the problems of life and have a good time. Let's see if that's where we can find ultimate satisfaction. And the fool is one that Scripture tells us who tries to drown out the reality of death with entertainment, with drink, with laughter, with, with a fun time, but it doesn't work. You're still going to die even if you live without thinking about your death. Now, Kohelet loves to give us his, his conclusions right up front. He can't wait till verse 11. And so he says, it was 
futility. It was vanity. I will test you with pleasure, but behold, this also was vanity. And he says, what is the use of pleasure and laughter? He calls it, he calls it madness. He says, this is, this is nuts doing this. This is, this is insanity. He says to pleasure, what does it accomplish in the New American Standard Translation? What does it accomplish? What does it do? What, what is the use of it? And what does it do? Think about it. What does a good time do? What good would a life of constant laughter and pleasure do? Job 20 verse 5 tells us that the triumphing of the wicked or the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment. Hebrews 11.25 talks about the passing pleasures of sin. The joy of, of this kind of frivolity doesn't last. Most of us would be bankrupt if we tried this, but, but even if we didn't, even if we didn't go bankrupt, even if we could keep the laughter going and none of the pains and difficulties of life ever broke through, what would be the point of it all? What would be the use of it? Kohelet tried it and he declares again in verse 1, Behold, this also was vanity. Fun and games is not the answer to life. And so Kohelet decided then, let's get, let's get serious. I tried that. Let's get serious now. And he turns to from play to projects. And so the second empty pursuit is number two, projects. We're going to see this in verses four to six. Kohelet employs his creativity in an amazing variety of grandiose endeavors. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. Or I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He says there, I made great works. And that's even more literally, or the, the New American Standard says, I enlarged my works. And the idea is, more literally, I made my works great. Solomon built like no other king up, up until his time. He built the temple of Yahweh, and he built multiple houses for himself and for his wives. He built cities and fortifications. He built stables and storage facilities throughout Israel. He built these, um, these orchards that he talks about in verse four and five. I want you to turn to first Kings. Maybe keep your, your thing here and turn to first Kings chapter five, where we see the reign of Solomon and some of the things that he built and did. This is Solomon's building crew, 1 Kings 5. We'll start reading there in verse 13. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel. And the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a, a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. 
Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. And so Solomon's got 30,000 tree cutters, 70,000 transporters, 80,000 uh, um, movers of stone, and 3,300 managers. That's a massive workforce, even by today's standards. In chapter 6 and verse 1, we learn that, um, that Solomon began building the temple in the fourth year of his reign, and chapter 6, 2 to 37 describe the building. That whole section describes the building of the temple. Chapter 6, verse 38 tells us that he finished in the 11th year so that it took him seven years to build the temple. Now look at uh, 1 Kings 7 and verse 1. So Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. Solomon took... 13 years. He built a, a house in the forest of Lebanon, and all of chapter 7 is dedicated to describing Solomon's works. 51 verses just describing Solomon's building of his houses and his works. 1 Kings chapter 9 verse 10 tells us that these two houses, these, the, the house of the forest of Lebanon and the other house, took Solomon 20 years to build. Now, when I first kind of looked at this passage a few years ago, I, I asked a few builders, well, how long would it take? Let's say you had a crew of, of maybe five skilled guys. How long would it take to build a, a nice modern home with, with five guys working steady? And they said somewhere between six to eight months, maybe even for a custom house, up to 14 months. So think about how amazing Solomon's home must have been. 3,300 managers, almost 200,000 workers working for 13 years to build him his house. That's 4,000 times more workers and 12 times more time. That's 4,800 times, uh, 48,000 times the house of the, the standard house that we would have in uh, a nice house in Canada. 48. Can you even imagine 48,000 times the house that you have now? This is a dream home on steroids. And when the queen of Sheba saw his works and the stairway that went up to the house of the Lord, just the stairway, 1 Kings 10.6 says there was no more spirit in her. It literally took her breath away to look at the stairs of the house that Solomon built. And that wasn't even all. He also built vineyards and gardens and park. He had a, he had an amazing professional landscaping company doing his work for him, landscaping his gardens and parks. None of these tiny modern houses with the little yards. No, Solomon's backyard was an orchard park full of delicious fruit trees and it was also filled with, with ponds to irrigate the whole forest of growing fruit trees in his backyard. Now, how do we even relate to all this? Just imagine the greatest possible house 
in the best location that you could with every perk imaginable, every perk that you want. Heated driveway, perfect lawn, indoor swimming pool, full court gymnasium, tennis courts, golf course, you know, get, get creative. Now times that by 4,800. That's kind of what Solomon's doing there. Notice in the text there, at least in the New American Standard, it comes out really clear that he did this for myself. I, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them. I made myself pools from which to water. He's, he's doing all of this for himself. Did it satisfy Solomon? Did, is, this, is this the answer to life? Again, look at verse 11. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done. I'm back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, brothers and sisters, I... I I just want to say here that it's okay. It's okay to have a nice house and it's okay to enjoy landscaping or making upgrades or doing renovations, but we need to remember that none of it's going to last. The enjoyment of those things in and of themselves will be fleeting and, and when you die, it will be gone. You know, we can so easily make projects into idols. You know, I've, I've known people that go from, from one thing to another, from one hobby to another. And you can tell that it doesn't satisfy because they always have to move to another project or another upgrade or another thing because they're not satisfied in what they have. And so Solomon tried it. He tried projects and he exceeded anything that we're ever going to do as far as projects or housing goes. And he said it was empty, it was vanity. The next empty pursuit that he tries then is he goes from projects and he talks about his possessions in verses 7 and 8. From this world's perspective, Kohelet had it all. And when it came to possession, nobody can match him through all history. Look, look at what he says there in verse 7. I, I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and we'll just stop right there for now. Now, slavery was a reality in the ancient Near East, and a slave could perform many tasks, or any tasks really, from, from a high management position to caring for the animals or whatever you might think of as the lowest position. And so a slave was from really from high to low. And what this means then for us today in terms is that in today's terms is that Kohelet had servants to do all of his work for him. He had, he had somebody to do everything that he needed done for him. He had people at his beck and call to meet his every need. We already saw that his labor force was close to 200,000 workers. He also had servants tending his gardens, feeding his animals, keeping his house, making his dinner, pouring his wine, designing his clothes. And all of that adds up to luxurious comfort. He had the, the ultimate in comfort 
that you could ever want in the ancient Near East. Whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, he had it. He had flocks and herds. Now, that, what that means is he had steak dinners and uh, mutton chops and roasted lamb, whatever kind of yummy meat he wanted. 1 Kings 4.22 says Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. That Again, that was for one day. That was for one day to feed all of his court. Some have estimated that's enough food for 20 to 30,000 people. And the point is, it was more than enough for Solomon. With, of, of all of those cuts of meat, he could have had the best piece of steak from any of them at any time that he wanted. Remember when the Queen of Sheba visited? Remember her visit again? She brought a, a quote, a very great amount of spices, 1 Kings 10.10. And then it says, never again did such an abundance of spices come in. And so you can imagine all the delicious foods that Solomon ate, perfectly seasoned with the rarest spices. Now let's look at his gold. Look at verse 8 again. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. How much gold did Solomon collect for himself? 1 Kings 10, 14. This is from the New American Standard Bible. He says, Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs, and the governors of the country. And so in one year, Solomon brought in 666 talents of gold, plus all that other gold from those other guys. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about 666 talents of gold, it, it just doesn't mean much to me. Um, and so we're going to try to bring this into modern times. A, a talent is notoriously difficult to, uh, to trace because the, the weight of a talent uh, varies through history and it varies depending on the, the, the talent that it is, a talent of silver versus a talent of gold or talent of wheat or whatever. So I took what, what, they, what they guess is the smaller talent. And that smaller talent was about 3,000 shekels or 75 pounds. And I calculated how much gold that would be worth how much that gold would be worth today. And I did this a few years ago, so we'd have to kind of increase it a bit for the cost of inflation. But before I tell you, let me just ask you this. How much annual income would be required for you to do whatever you want, whenever you wanted? I just want you to think about that. How much annual income, whatever I want, whenever I want, Now, go ahead and even just dream big here, but keep it reasonable. What, what, could you, what could you actually spend? What could you actually use? What about a million dollars a year? How far would that go? Let's say with that million dollars a year, your house is already paid for and you already had 30 cows and 100 sheep to eat every day on top of all the other food that you had. I bet you could do a lot with a million dollars of tax-free income, right? This is tax-free as well. But let's just go up and, and make sure you really have enough. How about let's double it, two million, or let, how about let's just say, let's get crazy, ten million dollars. Hey, let's say ten million dollars annual income in pure gold. What would, what would even a hundred million dollars do per year? 
Well, 666 talents of the smaller talent of gold is just shy of 50,000 pounds of gold per year. And according to OnlyGold.com, and this is a few years ago again, that is worth per year U.S. That's kind of today's equivalent of what Solomon brought in year by year. $890 million per year. Now remember, we didn't count his other gold that came from the other guys, the traders in the provinces, and the treasure that he calls the treasure of kings and provinces would be kind of like special craftsman things that are specially made just for the king. We're not even counting any of that. We're just counting his gold. Oh, and remember he had so much silver that silver was counted as worth nothing in Solomon's time because there was so much of it laying around. They just left it on the streets like rocks, First Kings tells us. And so the money that Kohelet had was beyond belief, really. I don't think anyone, even today, comes anywhere close to that kind of money per year. $890,112,000 plus a little bit for inflation. Oh yeah, and also, look at verse 8, he also had a really sweet sound system. Male and female singers. He had all of this. Really everything the world can offer, and he confessed... It didn't satisfy. It didn't satisfy. It didn't fill his heart. It didn't make him happy. Now I imagine that there's, there's at least one person here right now that's thinking, well, I know Solomon couldn't do it, but I could find true happiness if I had $890 million a year. But here's the thing that you're forgetting if you, if you think that way. You are gonna die. And then God's judgment comes. And then what good would all that money do? And the other thing that you're forgetting, and that's something that comes out later in the book of Ecclesiastes, is that only God can give us the power to enjoy life. And we're going to see that later in this book. But only God can really give us the power to enjoy life. And so listen, it's better to have $5 with the joy of the Lord than $500,000 without it. And I think we've all experienced how possessions can't truly make us happy. At least, at least how short-lived that enjoyment is. We just went through Christmas season. Christmas is, is coming, uh, or, or has already passed and often we get presents. I, I remember when I was six years old or about, between somewhere six and eight years old, I really wanted a micro machines, uh, jet set, little tiny jets with fine detail, these little micro machines. And there was this really cool ad on the TV about how awesome these micro machines were. And I found my present before Christmas and I opened it and I, I took a peek at it and I closed it back up. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Um, and, uh, and I rewrapped that present and I anticipated those things for about two or three weeks. But when I finally opened it on Christmas Day, the, the joy that I thought those little micro machines toys would, would bring me vanished. And that's how you find it, I think, with all possessions. You, 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 you enjoy it for a moment. It's, it's nice and fun at first, but then it's, it's, it doesn't fill your heart, does it? You, you've all, we've all been there. 
If you had $890 million a year, you could experience that fleeting joy every day of your life. You could open a new Christmas present every single day of your life, but eventually it would get so boring and the result is the same. It would not and it could not provide meaning or lasting joy to your life. And so if possessions aren't the answer, what else did Kohelet try? Remember, he tried everything under the sun. And we're going to call this next one, he tries pleasure. The second part of verse 8, he tries pleasure. This verse tells us about something else the king provided for himself. But what exactly that thing is, is actually a bit of an interpretive issue. The ESV says, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man... The New American Standard says the the pleasures of men, many concubines. The New King James translates it the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. The uh, American Standard Version says the delights of the sons of men, musical instruments and that of all sorts. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it many concubines, the delights of the son of men. And the NIV says a harem as well the delights of the sons of man. Now, there's a big difference between a harem and a musical instrument. And the reason for the dramatic difference is that we really don't know what the word translated concubine or musical instrument or harem actually means. This word only happens one time here in the Old Testament, and it's actually repeated twice, once in the, singu- once in the singular and once in the plural. And it's actually very much like chapter 1 and verse 2, where it says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. There's the singular vanity, and then there's vanities. And whenever we have that kind of repetition of the singular and the plural, the vanity of vanities, the idea is it's the greatest thing of whatever it is. And so we would kind of say something like, Jesus is the king of kings. Of all the kings, he is the greatest king. Or Lord of lords, of all the lords, Jesus is the greatest lord. Of all the vanities, the preacher says everything is vanity. And and so it's the, the greatest vanity. Now there is a Hebrew word for concubine, and there's a Hebrew word for musical instrument, and this word is not those words. It's not even close to those words. Whatever this word is... One thing's for sure, it's connected to, and you can see it right there again if you look, it's connected to the pleasures of men. Many something, the delight of the sons of men. Now the the New King James has the delights of the sons of men and... But there is no and in the original. So whatever this thing is, it's further described by the pleasures of the sons of men. Now, I'm a man. I've counseled a lot of men over the years. I've known a lot of men. I've never met a man whose chief temptation for pleasure was in musical instruments. But one time I, I preached this and there was a guy who said, well, you know, I sure do like musical instruments. And so it's possible that such a man exists. But I would say it's unlikely that that's what Solomon's talking about. Notice it's the pleasures of men. Now the closest word to the word in verse 8, I'm not even going to tell you what it is in English. It's the word shad in Hebrew. And the word shad usually comes in a dual form. Shadim. 
Now, Hebrew has plural when there's multiple things, and then they have a form that's dual when there's two things. And so whatever shadim is, it, whatever the shad is, it, it comes in a pair. Now, I'm not going to give you the English word. I'm only going to say that sometimes Solomon calls this pair, in Songs chapter 4, verse 5, he calls it the twins of a gazelle. The twins of a gazelle. And that could be called the pleasures of the sons of men. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, well, then bless your heart. That's awesome. But if you are picking up what I'm laying down, you might be thinking about 1 Kings 11 verse 3, where uh, we learn that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, I did a little bit of math again on this. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Solomon reigned 40 years over Israel. And he was about 20 years old when he became the king. And if we divide those 1,000 women into those 40 years, that's 25 weddings per year. 25 honeymoons per year. Or we could put it like this. That's a wedding every second week for 40 years. Or we could put it like this, and I'll I'll stop here. If Solomon spent some quality time with three of his wives every day at the end when he'd married them all... Every day of the year, he would just barely visit them once a year. That's with three wives a day. Every day of the year, he'd just barely get through the whole thousand in a year. And the point is, is that Solomon had as much sensual pleasure as he could want. He had the most beautiful women in the ancient world, or in the words of of Songs 7 and verse 8, and I'll let you look that up at home. It, it, It says something about how he climbed a lot of palm trees. Now, You know the verdict already. It was vanity. There was no profit there. It was, it was empty to him. He had all of that and it, it it was empty. It wasn't, it wasn't ultimately satisfying. And so don't be tempted by that. Verse nine, look at verse nine. It says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Now, what would you call this? I became great and increased more than all who preceded me is how the New American Standard Bible translates us. He's telling us about his greatness compared to those who came before him. He was great. He increased. I think he's saying then in verse 9 that he was famous. He was well known. He was well thought of. And I called this then number five in our outline, prestige. Solomon tried prestige. The fifth empty pursuit was prestige, popularity. Nobody compared to Solomon. All the kings of the ancient world came to hear his wisdom and check out his works, 1 Kings 10.24 tells us. Solomon, or Kohelet, was, was great. His fame increased. And he reminds us again of his wisdom. He was famous and smart. A rare combination. And in case he missed anything, Kohelet gives us one more thing in verse 10. The sixth empty pursuit is a, a kind of a catch-all category, and we're going to call it a plethora. Look at verse 10 again. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart was, my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Again, this verse is just really summarizing all that went before. He's telling us that he didn't leave anything out. If he wanted it, he got it. If it promised pleasure, he tried it. He thought of all the good things as 
reward for his hard work. He had everything that his eyes wanted and he did not withhold his heart from any pleasure. Solomon had everything the world has to offer. And 1 John 2.15 summarizes it as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Solomon had all his eyes wanted, all his heart wanted, and he was literally, metaphorically, on top of the world. Now he does notice there that there was a, a little bit of pleasure in all of this. His heart was pleased because of all of his labor. Kohelet worked hard and he played hard. In chapter 1 and verse 13, he told us that he set his mind to seek and explore all that had been done under heaven. He tried play. He tried projects. He amassed possessions. He had pleasure. He had prestige. He tried it all. He tried a whole plethora of possibilities. He left nothing out. He had every comfort. He had every opportunity. And what was the result? Look at his conclusion in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And this is then the second point in our outline and we're going to call it Kohelet's Proclamation. Kohelet's Proclamation. Kohelet steps back at a, at a later point in his life and he considers all the things that he tried. He would have needed time to build these houses, to use all the money, to see what satisfaction came from prestige and from pleasure and from play. To consider um, means there to, to, to turn towards something. I considered all that my hands had done. He kind of turns and, and thinks about it. He turns to examine all that he had done, all the play, all the projects, all the possessions, all the prestige, all the pleasure. He turned his full attention to it and he declares all was vanity, striving after wind and without profit. He uses all of his negative summary phrases to conclude these verses. And note there the word, at least in the original, there's the word Behold, and it's right there in the middle of verse 11, I had expended and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained. This is an exclamation. All is chavel. All is striving after wind. There's no profit under the sun. That word profit in verse 11 is meant to bring us back to a question from chapter 1 and verse 3. That same word is translated let's see how it's translated in the esv it says what does a man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun the idea of of gain or profit there what the the new american standard translates that what advantage does a man have in all his work and again in 211 what profit is there under the sun the best in or, sorry, man in the best position to make a, a profit under the sun, he proclaims to you and to me that there is no profit under the sun. There's nothing to be gained. There's no advantage to man. Now, I want to just kind of take what we've learned here then and, and drive it home for us. We need to take Kohelet's message to heart. And here's what you got to know if, if you're going to get the most out of this. Kohelet is not a grumpy old man who woke up on the wrong side of the bed and had vinegar in his cornflakes. He's not bitter. He's not angry. 
He's not even even just pessimistic. He's really tried all of these things, and they really are chavel. They really are striving after the wind. They're fleeting. They're evanescent. They're empty. They're vain. If ever we could translate Havel meaningless, it's, it's here in chapter two. It's, it's meaningless. There's no purpose. There's no ultimate fulfillment in it. When he asks of pleasure, what does it accomplish or what is the use of it? That, that question really applies to the whole section. These pleasures are unprofitable. You might ask, how does this harmonize with the passages that we're, we see throughout this book where, where Kohelet tells us to enjoy the good things that God gives? Kohelet's going to tell us to rejoice and to enjoy life, but first we need to realize that these things are empty of themselves. They cannot satisfy apart from God's blessing them to us. And so when you think about it, Christian, do you enjoy a good laugh or even a, a glass of wine? Do you enjoy your house or your job or having a few dollars in your pocket? How about the wife of your youth? Do you enjoy the wife of your youth? And the, the reason that you can enjoy those things is because of God's grace, not because those things are ultimately satisfying of themselves. We must depend on God for our joy. Remember, the, because these things are truly havel apart from Him. And so let me tell you this as boldly as I can, and and I want the kids especially to listen up here. The world kind of promises so many things to us, but but listen, sex, drugs, and rock and roll won't satisfy. Money and power can't satisfy. The pursuit of happiness and the American or the Canadian dream can't do it. $900 million a year wouldn't be enough. Hilarity, frivolity, laughter, it won't fulfill you. Even if you combine those things with the perfect amount of wine and you're the smartest person in the world to maximize the enjoyment you can get out of those things. Fortune and fame can't make you content. Or in the words of our outline, play, possessions, projects, pleasures, prestige, and a plethora of things are not in and of themselves able to provide meaning, purpose, or lasting pleasure in your life. We were created to find joy in God alone. But Scripture tells us we look to drink from broken cisterns. Romans 1 talks about sinful man's terrible exchange. Instead of worshiping and serving God, we worshiped and served the creature. Instead of finding joy in God, we suppressed the truth about God and unrighteousness before we were saved. And in verse 25, it says that they, the mankind exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And what is the lie? I would suggest that the lie in that context is anything, that anything in creation is worthy of our worship. Or to put it another way, the lie is that the creation is greater than the creator. And so here's where we really need to listen. When, when we try to find enjoyment in anything other than God, or when we look to something in and of itself rather than to God who gives us life and gives us those good things, we are insulting God to His face. What greater insult can we give to God than to worship something other than Him? And if we do that, we're telling Him that those things are greater and better than He is. What a, what a blasphemy that is. When we look to the world for our joy, we tell God that He is not enjoyable. 
And because God is a jealous God and he views himself as supremely valuable, the worship of creation, whatever it is, whether it's play or pleasure or possessions, whatever it is, it kindles his wrath. And it might not even be too much to say that God is even angry with some of you here today because you've been pursuing empty pursuits rather than worshiping him. Can you see somewhere in your life where you've been worshiping the creature instead of the creator? Then let me tell you about another exchange. This is called the great exchange. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He bore the wrath of God for whoever will turn from sin and come to Him. For whoever will turn even from the sin of not honoring God the way that He deserves. Jesus not only paid that penalty, He also came to reveal God to us so that we could rightly value our Creator. Jesus turns us from sin by showing us the weightiness of God, by showing us the glory of God. When we look at Jesus Christ, we see the the glory of God in the flesh. And He came to turn us away from the sin of worshiping this world so that we would turn and worship Him and His Father. And so if you are here today and you're a, an unbeliever, I would urge you to, to turn from your sin and turn to God. And if you're a believer here this morning and you recognize in your own heart and life that you've been living for some of these vain things in the world, I would invite you as well to turn from those things and find your joy and satisfaction in God. He will forgive our sins. Again, Kohelet experimented with play, projects, possessions, pleasure, prestige, and a whole plethora of things. And what did he find? Did it satisfy? Did it, did it fill his soul? Did it, did it, uh, do anything lasting at all? No, he, in every case, he went on to try something else. In every case, he recognized that it wasn't ultimately fulfilling. And next week when we come back, we're going to see the other side of this coin and see how we can enjoy those things as good gifts from God, but do it in such a way that we glorify and honor God instead of living for those things. Instead of exchanging those things for God, we're to receive them as a gift from God and give Him thanks and glory in and through those things. But we're going to worship our God now with, with a song. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you and we thank you so much for raising up somebody like Solomon that he could really, in a way that nobody else in history ever could, that he could try all of these things and show us the emptiness and show us the value of eternity and the value of fearing you and knowing you. And so, Father, we pray, that we, and we all know it, we, we know these things in our hearts. We ask you to turn us from vanity And turn us into people who live for you and for your worship. We recognize you as the supremely valuable one, Lord. We pray you'd forgive us of our sins and help us to learn to rejoice in the Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.